This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of interviews and presentations by members of the U.S. intelligence community. And today we have a real freak. Some bona fide stories of spies and spy gear in the United States. To help me with today's presentation, I would like to welcome, first of all, a very good friend and former career trainee classmate, Bob Wallace. Bob is a former uh, operations officer, chief of station, and toward the end of his career was the director of CIA's Office of Technical uh, Service. They were the guys who actually provided the real spy gear for operations. Along with Bob is Keith Melton. Uh, Keith is a um, graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. He's a well-known uh, historian and collector of espionage gear. He actually lent a lot of his uh, collection to CIA for its 50th anniversary. He is a founding member of the International Spy Museum and has lent them a number of his artifacts as well. Uh, gentlemen, welcome to Athio Now. Morning. Keith, go ahead and get us started. Well, we are delighted to be with you today. And as for many people may collect coins or other things, uh, Bob and I over the years have collected spy sites and images about them. And it's been an interesting pursuit. And we have, when we had the opportunity to present them in book form, we were very pleased to do so. As we look around the country to see which sites potentially could be used in which cities, we came to an interesting conclusion that there are three major cities in U.S. history that would justify and support a standalone book. And those are Washington, D.C., of course, New York City, also probably logical, and then Philadelphia. And in those three centers throughout history, there has been a continuing espionage war. Philadelphia may be a little bit of a surprise, but of course, during the American Revolution, it was a center of espionage. Also saw importance during the Civil War, and surprisingly to many people, during World War I, where there was a large German contingent in the Philadelphia area. We have identified in the book more than 600 entries. These are together with more than 700 photos, and we've identified more than 1,000 individual sites. Uh, sites may be everything from an operational area to a birth site to a death place, uh, something that was key. Ultimately, in the book, we have written it in a way that we emphasize the craft of intelligence as we tell the stories. And hopefully, our readers will enjoy the history and how we use correct terminology and we refer to the trade craft and often even the gadgets. So it is, uh, it's been a pleasure to work with Bob and we look forward to, uh, I'll turn it over to Bob. If I were writing for the London Times in 1775 and I was a correspondent in Philadelphia, perhaps my lead story, my major story of the day would be 
uh, not about the founding fathers of the new American Republic, but of a den of spies of some revolutionaries that uh, seem to have a, a dream that likely would be unrealized. In 1775, the uh, the Continental Congress meeting in the Carpenter's Hall and subsequently in Independence Hall uh, really formed a conspiracy, an intelligence conspiracy, by by first creating a secret committee that uh, was supporting. General Washington, who had been selected as the head of the American uh, Patriot Revolutionary Army in June of 1775. That Congress uh, gave Washington a secret fund uh, from which Washington, as early as July of 1775, uh, attempted or began establishing an intelligence network in the Boston area. Washington recorded a payment of $333 to a person that has never been named to travel to Boston and to begin setting up an intelligence network. So all elements of, of modern espionage were really considered by this small group, this uh, secret committee, which was composed of many of the founding fathers, uh, in, in, including uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, Robert, Robert Morris, uh, Robert Livingston, and others, uh, to, to create a, an environment or an, an intelligence apparatus that did not only collection, uh, but also covert action in the sense of, uh, of, of misinformation, uh, uh, of, of concealments, of, of all of the things that we think of as a modern intelligence service. Uh, interestingly, one of the early uh, folks involved, men involved, was John Jay, uh, who ultimately became the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But in these early years, John Jay of New York was authorized to form a committee to uh, find spies. The New York State Committee to Commission for Detecting and Defeating Conspiracies. Uh, so uh, John Jay got his uh, teeth sharpened early on in the business of counterintelligence and could be uh, perhaps called the father of American counterintelligence. The other element that the founding fathers engaged in in Philadelphia was the establishment of a liaison relationship with a foreign country, specifically the French. Interestingly, this is only about 10 years after the French and Indian War, uh, but the French government sent a, a covert representative a, posing as an Antwerp merchant to Philadelphia uh, who met with the founding fathers in Independence Hall. And while this envoy said he quote, did not speak on behalf of the French government, unquote, uh, he thought that there would be ways for the patriots to uh, find uh, a channel of supply for for munitions and other support for 
uh, their efforts uh, from the European countries. And uh, that, in fact, led to a, a very active covert trade between the Patriots and, and the French. Uh, so the den of spies, then in, a year later, in July of, 19, of 1776, uh, became the founding fathers of America. When the war began, uh, there were really two centers of the Revolutionary War, one in New York and one in Philadelphia. The British occupied uh, Philadelphia in the fall in the autumn of 1777 and held Philadelphia for about a year. During the time of the occupation of Philadelphia, uh, Washington, operating primarily from Valley Forge, was running a series of, of intelligence collection operations uh, in, in Philadelphia to find out what the occupying forces were doing. There was also an attempt to uh, break the blockade of Philadelphia. Uh, the British ships were in the, uh, in the, in the Delaware River. And the genius of David Bushnell, a man who had first invented or developed the uh, America's submarine, uh, attack submarine known as the Turtle, to attack a, a British warship in New York Harbor, was uh, summoned to help with the siege of Philadelphia. So David Bushnell conceived of a uh, idea that he would float uh, drums, wooden drums filled with explosives down the Delaware River at night, and these would explode next to British ships or harbors. Well, uh, this was a great operational plan, like many operational plans, when it became the time of implementation, didn't quite work as, as expected because they miscalculated the tides and the, the uh, barrels of explosives didn't reach their destination during nighttime as it was intended. So when the British saw the barrels coming down uh, at at daybreak, uh, they began firing at them and exploded them all in the uh, in in the river. Uh, the British commander, General Howe, however, uh, was not willing to just say this was uh, a lucky incident. He reported to his British superiors in Washington a great in London a great success in defeating the attempt of the of the Americans to destroy his ships. It resulted in a little song, a little ditty, a, a satirical ballad that we have reproduced in Spice Nights of Philadelphia, uh, which uh, was sung to the delight uh, of the of the American and of Patriot troops and to the shame of the British. The spies of Philadelphia, perhaps uh, no, no more uh, notable than Peggy Shipper. I say notable with a smile because many folks may not know who Peggy Shippen is. Uh, Peggy Shippen was a young 18-year-old, uh, beautiful, dynamic de uh, debutante of Philadelphia, a prominent Philadelphia Tory family.
her beauty uh, and was attractive to not only Benedict Arnold, but also the top British spy of the time, Major John Andre. Uh, the rivalry between these two was settled on behalf of Benedict Arnold, and by the time she was 19, Peggy Shippen was the wife of Benedict Arnold. Now, why is Betty, Betty, uh, Peggy Shippen important? Uh, Peggy Shippen is important because three years later, when Benedict Arnold uh, turned, uh, turned against the United States, uh, through his contact with Major John Andre, uh, uh, Peggy Shippen was accused of being part of the recruitment of Benedict Arnold and Benedict Arnold's treachery. Uh, she denied this, uh, saying that it was certainly no young mother uh, like her, young woman like her, would ever be involved in such things. Uh, the lie to that was pretty well put to rest when some of Peggy Shippen's correspondence with her husband, Benedict Arnold, was shown to contain secret writing. So Peggy Shippen and Benedict Arnold uh, eventually were uh, exfiltrated, in, in, in a way, to uh, London, where they lived the rest of their life. Major Andre, her other suitor, was not so fortunate. Uh, he was uh, captured in 1780, and uh, George Washington uh, didn't spare his life. He he hung hung uh, Major Andre for spying. Uh, a uh, let's uh, let's say that spies were treated a little differently during the Revolutionary War than they are today. Uh, Peggy Shippen is just one of a number of significant women during the Revolutionary War. Uh, that came out of Philadelphia, uh, there, Ma Rinker, uh, Laura Dower, uh, Elizabeth Bergen. Uh, uh, these, these names are all uh, part of Spy Sites of Philadelphia and make interesting reading for their particular contributions. If we move on to the Civil War, uh, Philadelphia again was one of the centers of espionage uh, during that uh, period of period of time. Pinkerton Detective Agency was a, a prominent player in the uh, Civil War, and Alan Pinkerton, who uh, headed the the agency, would have been considered a very forward-thinking uh, uh, man of his time because he hired. A, uh, a detective, uh, a detective by the name of Kate Warren, uh, who uh, joined uh, his his agency in the 1850s, uh, when they were primarily providing security for railroads. When Abraham Lincoln was elected in 1861, uh, Pinkerton was then hired. Uh, to pro provide security for him, and specifically for his travel from Springfield, Illinois, to Washington, D.C. A plot was discovered during that time that seemed to be an assassination attempt on Lincoln when he arrived in Washington. So the train trip from Springfield to New York 
to Philadelphia to Washington became a major focus of the Pinkerton work. And Kate Warren was one of Pinkerton's key detectives in that. Kate Warren was uh, assisted by disguising herself and being on the train with Lincoln during his travel from Philadelphia to Baltimore and then onward to Washington. Uh, Kate, uh, Kate Warren uh, died a, a very young woman in the uh, uh, not yet yet not yet forty, and at the time of her death, Alan Pinkerton declared her as one of the uh, best detectives, five best detectives he had ever worked with. It was quite a tribute to Kate Warren. Uh, she is now recognized as probably the first female detective in America in, in uh, the the American investigative profession. The train stations that were transited at the time included two major train stations in Philadelphia, uh, including uh, one that is uh, no longer uh, has been demolished, but uh, this is a sketch of the train station that Washington passed through in 1861 and then passed through again uh, the body of Abraham Lincoln five years later in 1865 after the assassination. We uh, try to touch on each of the major periods of Philadelphia spy history. And one of those periods is that the 1919 bombing epidemic that really permeated the United States. After we had the First World War uh, was, was finished, uh, there was a period in 1919-1920 of great social upheaval, upheaval uh, in, the, in the United States, including bombings by radicals throughout, uh, throughout the country in all the major cities in the country. Uh, one, of, one of those bombings significance uh, occurred in uh, 1919, in the spring of 1919, and the targets uh, included in Washington as well as Philadelphia. Uh, the, the Washington target was, one of the Washington targets was Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, who had been a prominent Democrat politician at the time. Palmer was from Pennsylvania, and so there were also bombings in, in Pennsylvania, including one at Our Lady of Victoria Catholic Church, uh, this, which is, is visible or seen in this, in this image. These bombings were never really satisfactorily resolved in terms of who was behind them other than the general the, the general uh, view that, well, it was the anarchists. The bomber of the, of the Palmer home in Washington, D.C., uh, was in fact identified, uh, or the individual was identified uh, because of a train ticket he had and the, the tag on a hat that he wore, which traced him back to Philadelphia. How, however, the the, the organization or the apparatus behind the bombings uh, were laid to 
the quote anarchist, uh, one of the major anarchists was uh, Luigi Galliante, who is shown here. Uh, it's one of the kind of the fascinating uh, unsolved mysteries of the uh, 19, uh, 19, 19, 1920 bombings uh, that have left scars in New York and in uh, Cleveland and other cities around the United States, as well as Philadelphia. Uh, but in, as we looked at the stories, it seems that there was a significant Philadelphia nexus for that kind of bombing uh, operations in, in uh, the early 20th century. So at, at this point, sir, ju just a few of the variety of uh, the kinds of sites that we have seen that we saw in Philadelphia before the uh, before the Second World War, and so Keith is going to pick up on the run up to the Second World War, and then some real additional spy sites during that period of time. During the 1930s, and especially the the late 1930s, there was a very large anti-war movement. And there were many people that were legitimately not wanting the U.S. to become involved again in another European war. And in many ways, this was a replay of the same sentiment that existed moving into World War I. But there was additional support behind the scene to foster this movement that was coming directly out of Germany. And they went and created something called the American Bund. Uh, they were kind of a very broad group. They were anti-Roosevelt administration. They were anti-Jewish. They were anti-communist. They were anti-trade union. And they were anti-American of boycotts of German goods. So had a lot of people that they didn't like. But they positioned themselves as a patriotic American group, which looked at George Washington, who they decided was America's first fascist. They had a very large following. They held rallies that were modeled after Hitler's rallies in, in Germany. And they operated a series of summer camps for youth, especially in the, in the Northeast, that were essentially modeled after training the Hitler youth. And this group had a very large following. Its head in the U.S. was Gerhard Kunze. He had uh, succeeded Fritz Kuhn as head of the organization, and they continued to draw public attention while he was secretly a Nazi intelligence agent and was communicating through the Washington, D.C. German embassy for his covert communications, and he was receiving his financing. Well, ultimately, this eventually seemed to succeed until the fall of 1941, when it was very clear that war was inevitable and that the U.S. would be involved. And at that time, he had tried and actually successfully escaped to Mexico, trying to reach Germany. But he was apprehended, he was returned to the U.S., and eventually received a 15-year sentence in 1942. The Germans, however, did not let up in their activities. And as Germany went to war in 1940, well, in 1941 and 1942, they began a very active campaign to sabotage U.S. war production. 
And this was critical, not only to stop the U.S. from arming itself, but it was all the support that the U.S. was providing to the allies in Europe. And they specifically were anxious to stop the production of aircraft, uh, anything that we were shipping quickly as to the U.K., which had been at war at this point for a couple of years. So in the summer of 1942, they had two submarines, uh, the U-402 and the U-584. Each one blocked off four saboteurs. The first were on Long Island, a group of four, and the second were on a beach in the northeastern part of Florida. And this two-year operation was intended to sabotage critical U.S. defensive plants. Very high on the list was a cryolite plant in Philadelphia for war production. And cryolite was only produced at one plant in the U.S., but was seen as, as essential. So targeting it was one of the first priorities. However, they certainly ignored the human power. <laughs> Though they had selected individuals that had an excellent English language skills, one of them by the name of George Dash, and he's in the lower left of the picture, decided after his first night in New York City that this perhaps wasn't the course he wanted to pursue, and he decided to take a train to Washington, spend the night at the Mayflower Hotel, and the next morning call and ask to speak to J. Edgar Hoover and tell them that he was here on a German sabotage operation. He gave a complete debriefing, was later arrested. Within 48 hours, they had apprehended the remaining seven saboteurs, and there was a very large public trial that followed in Washington, D.C. Eventually, six of the eight were executed. Only Dash and one of his compatriots from New York City lived and ultimately were pardoned and extradited back to, uh, to Germany. So it was a critical operation. Germany was very active in the U.S. in World War II, but perhaps not as successful. If we move into the, the core of the war, one of the great espionage successes wasn't by Germany, but it was by Russia, the Soviet Union. And the greatest theft during the war had to have been the secrets behind the Manhattan Project, which was the first atomic bomb. And critical to this was a interesting individual from Philadelphia by the name of Harry Gold. And Gold is described historically by his handlers as being short, fat, and with a round, full face. He was a smart he worked in Philadelphia, and he was targeted by Soviet intelligence to be the courier, the middleman between such agents as Klaus Fuchs, the German scientist who fled to the UK and was one of the most important scientists on the Manhattan Project, and David Greenglass, who was Ethel Rosenberg's brother, who was in Los Alamos, and ultimately Gold traveled to Los Alamos to meet with him. He would work his normal shift in Philadelphia, get on a train, go to New York City, meet with Fuchs, meet with others, get the intelligence, take the train back, find a way to transmit it, uh, usually with a dead drop, and then he would then go to work the next day. He was so important that in 1943, 
he was secretly awarded the Order of the Red Star. He was eventually arrested in 1950. And when the FBI searched his apartment, they found a map of his activities in Los Alamos and in Santa Fe. And ultimately, that led them to the Rosenbergs. Critical person, he was sentenced to 30 years in prison and paroled after 15. And But his house is largely untouched from the time that he lived there. One of the other most, and perhaps one of the most important operations, and it was linked to to Manhattan Project, was that the Manhattan Project had distributed key elements of the work to produce the bomb to sites around the U.S. And they are seldom remembered at this point, but within the Philadelphia Naval Yard, and specifically in Building 638, they had a secret thermal diffusion pilot plant, and this was critical. One of the individuals who operated that, we only discovered in 2007 that his, she was actually a, a Soviet agent and one of the most important Soviet agents in that he did his work, he served quietly, he went home and was only revealed in 2006 when a book on the operation named, didn't name him, but gave the position that had they received the information. And in 2007, Vladimir Putin honored him with an award and historians put together that his code name Delmar was actually the individual that was there. He then went to New York City. He serves as the, the head of a secret station there, posing as a, an electric company. He graduated from University of New York uh, in the late 1940s. He went back to the Soviet Union and was never heard of. So in many ways, he was close to being the perfect spy. One of the most colorful recent stories in Philadelphia is a link directly to perhaps one of the most significant terrorist actions after 9-11, which was the November 2008 attack by Lashkar-e-Taiba in Mumbai. And it was the first attack where Cell phones and small arms were used as weapons of mass disruption. Killed 163 people, wounded several hundred. Uh, it captured the world's attention for roughly 72 hours as Lashkar Ataiba, 10 people, took control virtually of the city and international news. The key person we only learned a year afterwards was a Philadelphia native by the name of David Coleman Headley, and you'll see him on the screen. He has an interesting background. His mother was Cyril Headley, a Philadelphia socialite who married a, her future husband was, a, was stationed at the Pakistani embassy. He was Pakistani. Ultimately, she moved back to Pakistan with him. They had a child, David, who attended a military academy there. Cyril, several years before, fled Pakistan, returned to her home, and she opened this small pub called the Khyber Pass. Uh, interestingly, it was one many years ago I, I visited and had, uh, had dinner there. 
Uh, it became a center of uh, good food, but also rock, roll, rock and roll, sex and drugs. And when David came back to live in the family business, he ultimately changed from being a very devout Muslim to suddenly he adopted his mother's lifestyle. And ultimately, it would lead him into a life of drugs. He became a significant drug dealer. He used his contacts in Pakistan to create a channel for importing drugs to the U.S. Unfortunately, he wasn't very good at it and was arrested in each of his major operations. He would serve prison time. He'd be released. Each time he's caught, he would volunteer completely. He'd give up everyone he had worked with, and he'd offer to cooperate. The authorities wanted to believe him. In turn, they'd give him another chance, and he'd repeat the same thing. Finally, by about 2003, he had made all of his drug sources so angry that he needed to find refuge. So he became a radical jihadist and began to train for suicide operations until one of his handlers said, you're too important for a suicide operation because you don't look like us. Doesn't look like what the typical person would expect a jihadist radical to look like. Because he had one blue eye, had one brown eye, his, he had his mother's features, and he would ultimately change his name from Diad Gulani to David Coleman Headley and began operations. In the summer of 2008, he would take his fourth wife with him to Mumbai on their honeymoon. But instead of enjoying their company and a tour of the city, he would leave her frustrated in the hotel while he would go around taking photographs of key locations, taking GPS coordinates, and planning the targets for the attack. He had so many girlfriends and wives, we had to assign them code, num code numbers as we went forward. And it was very interesting. That's probably a hallmark that your life probably is going to have a sad turn in the end. Uh, in 2009, he was living in Chicago with his first wife, several children. When he volunteered, this is a year after Mumbai, almost a year, he volunteered to head back to Europe to participate in a plan called Operation Mickey Mouse, which was to behead the Danish cartoonist Kurt Vestergaard, who had drawn the cartoon of the prophet, and his turban was in the shape of a bomb. And his plan was to take the cartoonist, the publisher, take him on the top of a building, behead him, and toss his head down below to the assembled journalists. Uh, fortunately, the FBI arrested him in Chicago, and true to form, the first thing he did was betray everyone that he had worked under the condition that he would never be extradited to either Denmark or to India. And he's still serving a part of a 25-year sentence at this point. Uh, Philadelphia is a fascinating city. The more Bob and I went into it, uh, the more we enjoyed discovering. In photographing many of these sites, we are certainly indebted to our researcher, Hank Schlesinger, who was uh, instrumental not only in many of the key elements of research, but in helping us get the photographs. Uh, when we're ultimately dealing with more than a thousand sites in the Northeast, managing the photographs and getting access is very interesting. Many of the sites in Philadelphia that were 
Civil War, World War One, and World War Two, and even the Cold War are not in optimum parts of town at this point. And appearing as a white person with a camera and wandering in these areas taking photographs also often drew a lot of interest and consternation with the residents. So we found that the best time to photograph many of the sites was actually about 6 a.m. in the morning when things were a little bit sleepy and Hank could get in, photograph quickly and get out. So it was a bit of a venture of us to get it done. Uh, I know that Bob and I would like to thank Jim and Afio for always for their continuing support. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity and I'll turn this back over to you. Keith, uh, thank, thank you uh, very, very much. I echo your comments on uh, Afio and the uh, wonderful relationship we've had with Afio for, for many years. Uh, we just uh, uh, so 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 appreciative of the work that AFIO does, and those of us who come from the intelligence community have uh, just uh, you know been so impressed over the years about the advocacy as well as the information that AFIO continues to provide. Uh, Jim, it's uh, just a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you, Mr. President. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Uh, a series of fascinating real-life spy stories here in the United States, uh, wonderfully uh, written and wonderfully told. Uh, Bob and Keith, we really appreciate you uh, appearing on AFIO now.